Welcome to Activate Church Podcast and thanks for listening. We hope this message helps you and we pray that God speaks to you through this week's message. I really feel like God's going to do something in this place today in your heart and your life and I really believe that miracles are going to happen in this house today and uh, your 2017 could be incredibly better for what God does in this place today. And so I want to pray a prayer and I want want you to pray with me but it's sort of a dangerous prayer because it's one of those prayers that God might answer. And, and so I'm going to tell you what the prayer is, uh, but, uh, you know, it'd be wrong for me to get you to pray a dangerous prayer if I first didn't tell you what you're about to pray. Uh, so simply, the prayer is going to be simply, we're going to give God permission to do whatever He wants to do or needs to do in us today. Okay? So uh, would you lift your hands to heaven if you're comfortable doing that? Close your eyes and just repeat after me. Say, Father, I thank you that Jesus uh, died for me. I thank you that you only want the best for me. Today, I give you total access to do whatever you need to do in me, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Why don't you grab your seats? Fantastic. So good to be here. I, uh, I love your prayers. Uh, we did. We took a big faith step, moved to America. Uh, we were there for three months uh, from August to November. Had to come back here for about nine weeks to sort out some visa stuff, which we've now sorted out, and uh, we've just gone to America. I'd love your prayers because, you know, we've been itinerants for five years. We didn't go to America because America was just opening up, do you know what I mean? And everyone was calling, saying, hey, come preach. Uh, Quite the opposite, in a sense. We went because God told us to go, and we've just hopped out in faith, and uh, we're going. And and, uh, so I'd love your prayers as we uh, embark on that faith journey and uh, see incredible miracles and testimonies happen. Um, I'll always be an Aussie at heart, but I've got to make a confession. I'm actually now about 6% American. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, The reason I'm 6% is because when I went in August, I was about 101 kilograms. Now I'm about 109. So this part here is legit like born in America. Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm trying to kill that part of me and go back to being 100% Aussie. Um, I don't think they'll give me a green card based on that. But anyway, um, but uh, for those that remember my story before we get into the word, uh, just give me a wave if you were here on that Wednesday night. Yeah, a whole heap of people. Cool. Uh, really quickly, I grew up here in Melbourne. Uh, my whole family were involved in drugs. Uh, I started doing drugs when I was about 13. Uh, marijuana, binge drinking. At 15, started to inject uh, speed using ecstasy, little bits of heroin. Uh, at 16, I took an acid trip where I overdosed. It left me with drug-induced psychosis for three years from 16 to 19. Uh, the television would speak to me. The radio would speak to me. Uh, I was really really out of my mind and uh but had an auntie that prayed for 17 years that I would one day encounter the love of Jesus she prayed that I'd become a giant killer for 17 years she prayed that prayer and uh, at 23 had a radical encounter with Jesus uh through a phone call with that particular auntie uh two weeks later God turned up in my lounge room I was living in surface paradise he told me I would never ever need drugs again and from that moment I literally completely set free completely healed and uh, isn't God powerful and mighty and uh so God's been so good and uh you know one, I got two beautiful little boys uh Josiah and Caleb and one of the things I love about being a dad uh, can I get a little bit more fallback here if that's okay but one of the things I love about being a dad is a thing that I call the dad anointing 
And so, so you probably wonder what that, what that is. But see, what the dad anointing is, is it's something that only comes upon dads. And when it comes upon you, you will allow your children to do things that a mum would never let them do. They're normally incredibly dangerous, dirty, but a whole lot of fun, okay? It was about six or so years ago, and we had the Brisbane floods. I was living on the Sunshine Coast, and uh, it had been raining for a whole month. And my kids at the time were five and six. They're both pretty energetic, pretty crazy. And so they'd been locked up in the house for a whole month of school holidays. And who knows, five and six-year-old crazy boys locked in a house for one month equals angry parents. And so, and I, my wife walked out the room and I felt the dad anointing come upon me. And I signaled to my boys, it was pouring with rain. We lived next to this muddy field. And I, I said, quickly, grab the rugby ball. Let's go play rugby in the mud in that, that muddy field next door. And I know I should have got them out of their brand new Christmas clothes first. But, but a dad anointing doesn't see details like that. We just see the fun. And so I've got my littlest boy, and don't tell him I said this, but he's the one that cries the easiest, okay? It's normally the second born. Come on, you know it's true if you're a second born. It's because you were tortured and tormented. And, and, and so he's the one that cries the easiest, and he's got the rugby ball. He's only about 20, 30 kilos. The ball was nearly bigger than him. He's about five, and he's running toward the try line, and there was this, this massive mud patch before the try line of, of a good couple meters, and and I think to myself, I'm sort of standing way over here, and I, I think if I run as fast as I can, I could tackle him, we, I could hit him, we would slide through the mud, across the try line, and in my mind, we'll create an incredible father-son memory that we'll talk about for many years. And so here he is, this little boy, 20 kilos, and way over here, you've got 109 kilos. I know I need to lose weight. 109 kilos of uncoordinated mass running toward this little boy. And mathematically, I timed it to perfection. I hit him right before the mud patch. I hit him hard. We slid for about two meters right across the mud, across the try line. The only problem was his head was face down the entire time. He got up and threw the ball as hard as he could and ran off to mom and that, that's when you need the mum anointing, when the dad anointing goes horribly long, which happens quite a bit. But I remember when he looked at me, and he looked up at me in anger, and I remember looking into his eyes, and you actually couldn't see the whites of his eyes, because they were covered in mud. It was at that moment I got the thought for this particular message, and God started to give me revelation. And get ready, okay, because this is deep, okay? And it's this simple thought that having mud in your eyes does not help you to be able to see. Deep, isn't it? It's deep. It's like, yeah, no wonder you got to America. Uh, they kicked you out. Having mud in your eyes does not help you to be able to see, unless, of course, Jesus is involved. Have you ever thought about the story, if you know it, in John 9, where God heals a blind man, but the way that he does it is Jesus, who represents God on earth as a man, fully man, fully God, he, 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 he spits into the ground. He makes a little mud spit pie. He puts it on the man's eyes and tells him to wash it off in a pool called Siloam and the man is healed. Like, have you actually ever thought about that story? Like what is up with that? Like seriously, was Jesus like, you know, had he been awake too long the night before? 
what was he showing off in front of the disciples? Do you know what I mean? Like, boy, watch this one, watch this. Like, was he sick? What, was he bored and sick of conventional miracles? Do you know what I mean? Like, like could you imagine if I said, hey, Pastor Ben, I feel like God wants to move in this service, but if you could just get me a little bucket of dirt. And then I clear my throat, do you know what I mean? And, and spit, and I get the little spit and the mud. I say, church, I tell you, there's an anointing in this place right now. Like, even if I'm the blind guy, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to wait for Ben Naitoko. I'm going to wait... I'm going to wait for someone to just put their hands on my head. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, and it seems like such a random thing that Jesus would do, doesn't it? But I really believe there's an incredible hidden truth for us as to why Jesus did this particular thing. I want to read from John 9 verses 6 to 8. The guys have got it on the screen. But before we read it, I want to give you, let me just tell you what's happening just before this particular verse. There's a conversation happening. You could almost call it a theological debate. And they're asking a question about life that's actually a pretty fair question to ask. They're looking at this particular blind man and they're saying, why him? I mean, why him? Why was he born blind? It's a fair question, isn't it, in life? And, and one person, theologically, well, he says, one of the disciples, he says, well, I reckon it's because his parents. Like they were just terrible sinners. So God gave them a blind child. Someone else jumps in and says, no, no, I, I reckon it's him. In other words, God must have had foreknowledge of how bad he would be. So God made him blind at birth. And Jesus jumps in, and this is in my own words, but it's true to the text. Jesus jumps in and he gives them the answer. He says, no, actually, the reason he was born blind was to give my father in heaven glory. I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to it to give my Father in heaven glory. Then we find ourselves at the text just after the conversation that I've just discussed. And if they could put up there, verses 6 to 8 in John 9, it says, it was on that, there we go. Having said these things, which is what we just spoke about, it says he spit on the ground. The Aussie Bible says he hocked up a loogie. Uh, he spit on the ground. He made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and he came home seeing. And then it says, His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same guy that used to sit and beg? Such a, a, a fascinating scripture as to why in the world did Jesus do this thing? You've got to look at the text in context to what was happening. The people were asking a question in life that's a fair question to ask. Why him? Why was he born like that? Why does he have this dysfunction? Why has he had this struggle? And remember Jesus gave us the answer. I was to give God, you know, the Father glory. But that was sort of the Spiro answer. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah, well, that's all good, Jesus. Do you know what I mean? For this moment where God got some glory. But what about the 35 odd years that this man had to live blind? So it's like Jesus sort of gave us this, the spiritual answer. Do you know what I mean? I was to give God glory. But I believe when Jesus puts the mud physically on his eyes he's actually answering that question practically as to why some people are born blind or with dysfunctions or different struggles in life see when he puts the the the, the greek word in this particular text for mud or clay is the greek word palos it's actually only used one other time in the new testament it's used in the book of romans where god through paul says it's my right to make whatever I want out of each piece of palos, each piece of clay. 
He says, some I will use for common purposes, some for noble purposes. So he's actually calling you and I clay. He's calling us mud. He's calling humanity uh, clay or mud, palos. The other time we see mud spoken about is remember in Genesis, different word because it was in uh, Hebrew, but remember in Genesis where God made the very first man. What did he do? He stooped down into the mud or the clay and he took the mud and then he breathed his breath into the mud and Adam was formed. So in a sense, Adam was part mud, part breath of God. And see, it's the mud that represents our humanity. And when Adam and Eve sinned, it was the mud that became contaminated by sin. And see, that's why we have this incredible wrestle where we can love God with all of our hearts. But, but we have this incredible wrestle because we all have the mud, the human part of who we are, that is contaminated by sin, that wants to be selfish and do the wrong thing. But then at the same time, we have the breath of God that's living on the inside, that is holy and righteous and, and, and eternal. And there's this incredible wrestle between the two. See, the mud is symbolic of contaminated sin. See, when Jesus puts the mud physically, palos, on the man's eyes, he's answering the question, why him? Why was he born blind? And we sort of get the spiritual answer, but then Jesus puts mud on his eyes and he's showing us that, you know, that the reason practically that this man was born blind, it's because of the mud. And the mud back in the garden has been contaminated by sin. And now sometimes people are just born blind. Sometimes people are born with different dysfunctions he gives us the the answer see but the thing is we can end up exactly like the blind man where we are unable to see the great things that Jesus has for our lives because we're looking through the mud we're looking through the filter of our fallen humanity we're looking through the filter of the struggle that our humanity has see I don't know what it is for you but everyone struggles with humanity. If you think that you don't, then just give me five minutes with your spouse and we'll come up with a pretty good list of the humanity that you struggle with. See, I don't know what it is for you that's stopping you from seeing. Maybe it's an offense of the past. And every time you try and see the future that God has, you're looking through the filter of that, that mud, that offense, and you can't see what God has for your life. Maybe it's a sin that you've been entangled in, uh, maybe for some time, maybe a short time. And every time you try and look to your future, you're looking through the filter of the mud of humanity of that sin that you're struggling with. Maybe it's not a current sin, but it's a past failure, a past mistake, a divorce or something that went wrong. And every time you try and see the future, you're looking through the filter of that mud and you're unable to see. Is maybe it's some kind of addiction. Maybe you were just born in a family that were naturally pessimistic and you always see the glass half empty and that's the mud of your humanity that's stopping you from seeing the great things that God has for your life. See, the reality is we all struggle with the mud. But I want you to put these two things together because remember Jesus says his, his mud or his blindness was to give God the Father glory. Then he says to us, well, practically the reason he's blind, it's because of the mud. But if you put those two things together, see, because what the devil does is we all struggle with our humanity. 
we all have flaws we all have imperfections and we can be walking around condemned feeling like yeah I just I don't make it how could God ever use me I've made all those mistakes I have these weaknesses I have these flaws and we walk around condemned but what you can understand from the text is it's actually your humanity is the greatest asset you have to bring God the Father glory see let me explain If I was just the breath of God, which is perfect in every way, then every time I succeeded, I would get all the glory. Because people would say, well, everything you've ever done has succeeded and everything you've done has been perfect, so of course it's going to be. But actually because of my mud, because of my humanity, especially the people that know me well, when they see the grace and blessing of God on my life, they know it must be God doing these great things in your life because I've seen your humanity and this must be God doing this great thing. I tell you, your humanity, that struggle is the greatest asset you have. I I remember um, a time, my dad's one of my dad's best mates here from Melbourne. And he's sort of been a knockabout sort of guy from Broadmeadows. And he's known me since I was a little kid. He, he does a bit of marijuana. He's definitely not a Christian guy, but he's a good man at heart and uh, always been nice and kind to me. And, and so he watched me get into marijuana as a young boy and he that, you know, drinking a lot of alcohol. And he saw me at 15 where I started to inject speed, never with him. But he saw the deterioration in my life. I became really skinny, uh, you know, not right in my mind. He saw me after I'd had that acid trip, and now I've got drug-induced psychosis. So I never told anyone what was going on, but of course people that knew me could see that something had really shifted and changed. He saw me at 23, where now I'd been what society would call a mentally ill junkie for probably the past eight years of my life. He saw me deteriorate. He also saw me after I'd got born again. And he would watch the gradual change in my life over 10 or so years. It was about three, four years ago. This man hadn't been to a church once in his whole 60 years of life. I told him I was preaching at a church in Melbourne. and I said, hey, is there any chance you'd come along and hear me preach? And he said, I'll come along because I've known you your whole life. And he comes to church and he's a rough kind of guy. And I preach my heart out as good as I can. And it gets to the end of the service, and if I be honest with you, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I just want to find out what my dad's best mate thinks, because it means a lot to me. And I, I find him on the front steps of church, and I get there after the sermon. I says, hey, Mark, you know, wh- what did you think? I-, I can't tell you exactly what he said word for word, because I'd never be allowed to preach here again. <laughs> so let me give you the censored version. This is without exaggeration. This is a man that is not a Christian. He hasn't been to church, but he's known me my whole life. I said, what did you think? He looked at me and he said, only, he said, I know you. He said, I've known you your whole life. I know who you are. He said, only God could have done what I just saw happen on that stage. There's no other explanation. Can I tell you, you might be struggling, but God wants to use that very struggle to become the thing that he gets glory for that particular struggle we just simply got to learn to deal with the mud i want to give you three quick things in dealing with your humanity that jesus helps this blind man to do the first one is found in our text in verse seven it says to him go wash in the pool of siloam that word means sent it tells us in the text the 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 first point is this if you're going to deal with the mud because remember this man's got the mud on his eyes symbolic of his struggle his humanity he says the first thing you've got to do is take your mud, your flaw, your struggle, take it to Siloam. 
Salome, that word means sent or sent one. See, my first point is this, is if you're going to deal with it, you've got to go with intent to the one that was sent. See, Salome is actually a picture of Jesus Christ because he was the one that was sent. See, Jesus, the fact that he was fully God, but also fully man, he had the same mud to contend with that you and I do, yet he was the only one that ever perfected the mud. And what he's saying here is what you've got to do is you've got to take your struggle to the one that perfected the mud, the one that overcame the mud. You've got to bring it to Jesus. And I say not just go to the one that was sent. I say go with intent to the one that was sent because the way that you go determines what you receive. See, the way that you go, see this man when he got the mud on his eyes, although his auntie was an incredible Jewish cook, He didn't stop off at her house for some lunch. When he got a sense that my healing is at Siloam, I tell you, don't get in my way. Don't talk to me because I've got a sense that my healing is at Siloam. I'm going straight to Siloam to get my healing. See, he went with intent. See, the way that you come into the house of God determines what you receive. The way that you seek God determines what you receive. The Bible says those that seek him, they'll find him. You know, I have two little boys, and as I said, one of the things I don't like about being a dad, and parents will relate to this, is that moment when you're on your way to church, and it's awesome because you're going to be early. And so you're heading out the door, and you get to the front door, your bags are packed. You look down to the floor, and you say, where's your shoes? I've told you a hundred times, put your shoes on. And you look at him and you say, right, mister, you have one minute to be in that car or you're in big trouble. Don't you hate when you sound exactly like your parents once sounded? You said it would never happen, but it does. I'm sorry, young adult, I'm prophesying. It will happen. You tell him he's got one minute, you go sit in the car. And one minute feels like three minutes. Two minutes feels like nine minutes. Three minutes feels like 15 minutes. Now I'm angry and I'm going to need two songs at church just to deal with my anger. But then because of my anger, now I'm fighting with my wife. Now I need two songs and communion just to deal with my heart. You go back inside and you find him. You're wondering, what in the world is he doing? And you find him, but he found some Lego and there was a house that wasn't yet finished and he had to finish the house. There's no intent. He doesn't care about what you're doing. It was funny because a little while ago, we took my youngest son to Dreamworld in Queensland we shouted, you know, four of his mates to come for his birthday and go to Dreamworld for the day. It was a miracle because he woke us up at six in the morning. He was already dressed. He had his bag packed. He had swimmers. He had packed his own lunch. He's like, come on, Dad, let's go to Dreamworld. See, the way that you come determines what you receive. See, when you come with a hungry heart, when you come with intents, you'll find what you're looking for. See, the way that you deal with your humanity is to have a hungry heart that says, you know what, I'm going to seek him. I'm going I'm to go with intent because Jesus is where my answer with, I can't do this by myself, but I can do it with him. So I'm going to find Jesus and take my humanity, my floor to the pool of Siloam, the one that was sent. The second thing, that, that he tells him is also in verse 7. He said, go to Siloam, but he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The second point is simple, is once you've gone with intent to the one that was sent, simply wash the mud off. 
See, in other words, when he got to Siloam, which is a picture of Jesus, practically, he had the mud, which was symbolic of his humanity, his flaw, his weakness, his disability. And he, he got to Jesus, to Siloam, but he reached down into the waters of Siloam and he took the water and he applied it to his eyes and he was able to see. See, Ephesians says this, that we are cleansed by the washing of the word. He went to Jesus. It's a picture of the word of God. When he got to Jesus, he took the words of Jesus and he started to apply it to his struggle, to his bad childhood, to that bad situation where he was abused, to that addiction. He, he put it and all of a sudden he was able to see the great things that God had for his life. You know, one of a embarrassing story, I, I, uh, when I got married, we had this major struggle and and really the struggle was uh, my wife was a germaphobe and let's just say I wasn't the most hygienic young man and, and so we would go to the movies and you know I'd be touching the escalator rail and she'd be sitting there freaking out like do you know how many millions of germs and and then I'd deliberately touch her face and say I love you baby so much and, and I was mean um, but the embarrassing part well not that I was a window cleaner but I was a window cleaner it gets embarrassing in a moment. Uh, and I would go to different shops. I was a youth pastor, but I was washing windows to make money. And, and I'd go to shops and I'd, you know, get my bucket, a bit of morning fresh, a little bit of cloudy ammonia to stop the streaks and soap up the window and get my squeegee, make it real nice. And, and so I was a window cleaner at the time. And, but I had this issue that was embarrassing. It is whenever, what's embarrassing now, whenever I'd wash my hands, I'd never use soap. And my wife would watch me do it. And she's like, you know, before this, she's like, just like use the soap. And I had this thing that I'd picked up from being a young person. I'm like, no, no, you don't need soap. You just need running water. I don't know where I got that from. But, but every now and again, she'd like, like, please, like, just pump the soap. And I'm like, you don't need soap. You just need running water. And so we're both a little stubborn, mainly her. Uh, don't, don't ever tell her I said that. Um, I'm scared of her. Anyway, I'm not really. Um, a little. Anyway. And so we're both a little stubborn. So this argument goes for about four years. Like every now and again, it would just come up. She's like, like, please, just use the soap. I'm like, you don't need soap. You just need running water. And then she has this moment of divine intervention. We're having our normal argument four years into it. God helps her, I think, because he was sick of my stupidity and wanted to shut me up. And so she has this moment of divine intervention, divine help, divine wisdom, where I'm going, no, no, you just need running water. She goes, okay, then. She says, tomorrow, when you go and do your windows, don't put any soap in the bucket. What would happen then? And I was like, oh, I, 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 I'm, I, that wouldn't, it wouldn't work. She says, I know, and it doesn't work on your hands either. <laughs> I'm thankful to say ever since then I've been set free, healed, delivered. I now use soap. You'll be happy afterwards when we shake hands. See, what's the point of the story? If you don't use soap, you end up with dirty hands. See, stop getting hung up on the fact that you've got some dirt. Welcome to humanity. We live in a fallen world and we have a rooted in a sinful nature. Stop getting hung up on your flaw and your struggle. Get hung up on the fact that he's provided the soap. And if you just keep taking yourself to Siloam and you keep taking the words that he speaks and washing and washing and washing, eventually there'll come a moment where you can see so clear the thing that God has for your life. If I could get the musos to come. See, really, this 
message really is about a devotional life. It's about the way you come to church. It's a way that we have, that's why we have to keep going to Jesus. See, see, I don't need a devotional life to change the way that God sees me. See, the Bible says, regardless of what I did yesterday, not in these exact words, but it's true to the text, regardless of what I did, he sees me as holy and blameless because he looks through the blood of Jesus. So I don't need a devotional life to change the way he sees me. I need a devotional life to change the way that I see him. Because I've got this mud that's contaminated by sin. And I can so easily end up with a distorted image of who my dad in heaven is. I need a devotional life to change the way that I see myself. And I need a devotional life to change the way I see you. I remember a time when this message became really powerful to me. We, we took a huge step of faith five years ago. We're running a church of about 1,500 people as a campus pastor for James McPherson. And God spoke to me and said, I want you to step out and just travel wherever I call you to go. And by God's grace, we've been all over the world for about five years. And now we're in the next phase of, a, phase of a, another crazy step of faith. But I remember about a year in, I started to get some really big opportunities. Preach at some big churches, planet shakers. I remember preaching there and it was amazing. I couldn't believe that I was going to do some of these things. And, but then I had this moment where I really started to shrink back. Because some of those pastors, I'd talk to them and Pastor Russell would talk about his dad who ran the whole movement for AOG. And then he'd talk about his dad's dad who did missions all over the world. I really actually started to feel my low self-worth insecurity. I started to feel like I didn't belong on those platforms. I didn't belong in those circles. See, the reason I felt like that is because of the family that I've come from. Most of my family come from Broadmeadows, at least my grandparents. My dad's mum was a beautiful lady, but when she was two, she was made an orphan. She was raised by her auntie, who was the local madam at the local brothel. It's where my, my nan lived. She grew up in a brothel. And you don't have to be Einstein to think about what happens to a little girl that grows up in a brothel. She married a man who was my dad's dad, who had an abusive childhood, but also became a very violent, abusive man, was an alcoholic. He broke bo most bones in my nan's body in front of my dad, threw her through windows, broke her jaw. He would make my dad and his brothers fight until someone could no longer stand up. It's a very angry man. He got born again three years before he died. But that's the parents that my dad came from. And it's no wonder that my dad used drugs and alcohol to medicate the pain of his childhood. On my mum's side, again, my mum's mum, beautiful lady, she's in heaven now. But her whole childhood, as a little girl, she was sexually abused by her own dad. She married a man that was also abusive, mainly verbally, was an alcoholic for many years of his life, suffered with depression. That's the mud in a sense, the humanity that my mum came from. And just to make it worse, when my mum was nine years old in Glenroy, she was walking home from school. She walked through a vacant block and three teenage boys grabbed my mum as a nine-year-old girl and they raped her. And again, it's no wonder that my mum used drugs and alcohol to medicate the pain of her past. My mum and dad both come from siblings of seven, so 14 in total. Nobody went to university. Nobody succeeded in a massive, massive manner. 
See, that's the mud that I've come from. And I started to shrink back. I started to feel like, but God, I'm not like them. I I don't really belong. And really it was insecurity and low self-worth that was my mud that was stopping me from seeing. And I had this moment where I was reading my Bible, just bringing my mud to the one that was sent. And as I went to these words and I read a scripture I've read so many times in Genesis where it says that we were created in His image, we were created in His own likeness. And as I read those words, it was like the Holy Spirit jumped off the page and He said, Lucas, that might be the immediate humanity that you came from, but let me tell you the original place you came from. You were formed and created in my very own image and you can stand wherever I call you to stand and go wherever I call you to go. See, it's a simple illustration for me that my mud was stopping me from seeing. But I found the right piece of soap. See, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's insecurity and fear. There's so much soap in here that says you have not been given a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and of self-control. And it's not like a magic wand that you just read it once and now you're over fear. But if you keep bringing your fear to the one that was sent and you keep grabbing that bit of soap and keep washing and saying, you know what? I haven't been given this spirit of fear. I've been given a spirit of power and of love. I tell you, eventually there'll come a moment where that fear drops off your life. See, maybe it's an addiction that you're just struggling with so much. There's so much soap in here that says when the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. That you are no longer a slave unto, uh, unto sin, but a slave unto righteousness. See, I don't know what it is for you, but whatever the mud that you're struggling with, can I tell you there's the exact right piece of soap. Last point, I need to move. This one's a quick one. Verse 8 is sort of the answer to why God wants you to live like this. You know, why does God want you to have a devotional life? Well, is He like this tyrannical God that says, you better spend time with me? No, He's a loving dad that wants to see you flourish. But verse 8 sort of tells us why God wants you to live this kind of life. Let's put that up on the screen. It says, His neighbours and those who had formerly seen Him begging asked Isn't this the same guy that used to sit and beg? Like, isn't that once he's healed, isn't he the same guy that used to sit and beg? See, the reason why God wants you to live like this, number three, is so that you'll stop living like a beggar. See, if you won't deal with that addiction, God still loves you, but you live your whole life like a beggar. If you don't deal with that insecurity, that low self-worth, that fear, then you're the one that lives like a beggar. If you won't deal with that negative mentality, then you're the one that lives like a beggar. If you won't deal with that offense, that thing that that person did to you, you're the one that lives like a beggar. But I want to tell you today, God has not called you to live like a beggar. He's called you to be the head and not the tail. He's called you to be above and not beneath. He's called you to be a daughter or son of the Most High God, to flourish in every single aspect of your life, in your family, in your business, in your career, in your church, in every single area of your life. Last story and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to be done at 11.30. Is that okay? Okay. Last story. A friend of mine. I remember sitting with him here in Melbourne. He comes from a family of three brothers from the country of Victoria. Good Christian home. His parents were perplexed. He was the youngest because the two older boys were just good Christian teenage boys. But he went off the rails. 
excessive drinking, suicidal, didn't want to go to church. And the parents were perplexed because they're like, well, how can three boys have the same upbringing but one be so different? I remember sitting in a cafe across from him as he starts to share his story and he says, Lucas, what my parents didn't know at the time is when I was four years old, a family male friend came to visit our country farm and late in the early hours of the morning, he snuck into my room and he sexually abused me. I remember sitting across from him, he says, it was like a black cloud came upon me and it never left. To make this story more horrific, he tells me that this happened to him from four different males in his childhood and upbringing. Four different people sexually abused him. Thankfully, I don't know the exact details, but roughly at about 18, 19, he went to youth group and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. The good thing is he didn't just make an emotional decision, but he committed to the process of discipleship. He committed to the process of taking his mud to the one that was said. He, he, he continued to go to Jesus and say, you know what? I'm not going to let what four evil men did to me determine who I am. I'm going to find out who Jesus says that I am. I'm going to keep washing and washing until I can see. At about 21, he went on his first ever missions trip. He went to India. While he was out walking by himself, a pimp, came up to him and offered him a little girl for hardly any money at all. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit said, son, you're going to help little girls like this all over the planet. He went back home, committed to that process. A few years later, he was in the shower and the Holy Spirit spoke to him. He said, son, it's now time to start what I talked to you about. He started a ministry. He doesn't run anymore. It's been sort of finished up for about five years and passed to other agencies. But he started it from scratch. And at the end of his roughly 10 years, he had four homes, three in India, one in Congo, Africa, where at that time, 350 girls were living in these particular homes that had been rescued by, from brothels. He had this one really cool rule because over 10 years, many girls had graduated and gone on and got married and that kind of thing. And he had this rule that if they married a man that loved Jesus and the church, then my friend would pay for the wedding, just like a dad would. See, why do I finish with this story? It's because if anyone had the right to live like a beggar, like if anyone had the right to just be a real prickly pear because of their upbringing, but I tell you, the greater tragedy than what happened to him is that what would happen to him and then he lives like a beggar his whole entire life because of what four evil men did to him. But he found out that he was a son of the Most High God. He continued to wash. Who knows you've got some low self-worth when that kind of stuff happens. But he just kept going to the one that was sent. He kept saying, no, I'm going to find out what Jesus says about me. Come on, God's called you to do greater mighty things. But you've got to wash the mud off. We've all got it. We've all got our struggles. Don't get hung up on the mud. Get hung up on the soap that's been provided. Just keep going to Jesus with intent. We trust you enjoyed this week's message. For any more information about Activate Church, check out our website, www.activatechurch.com or download our app online and have a great week.